Well, this morning we begin a five-week, new five-week series called the Vision Series. And uh, this was actually planned for April of 2020, when it would have had a much better ring to it, uh, Vision 2020. Um, but you know what happened in 2020, all of our plans uh, were either postponed or canceled or sidetracked. And uh, so we thought with so much uncertainty plaguing us at that time, it wasn't the right time to do a vision series. But now is that time. And so uh, this week and over the next four weeks, we're going to cast a, a biblical vision for our church uh, which will impact you and your families, of course, because you are the church. We're, we're not a building, as you know, has been often said around here. We are a group of called out believers who gather together. And so this vision will not be something we just look at corporately, but how does it impact and how does it affect us as individuals? We're going to do things a little differently this morning. Uh, typically, really probably 90% of the time, we're in a book of the Bible. We're working our way through a section within a book. It's called uh, expositional preaching. We keep the text in the context and look at how it fits in the broader story and kind of work our way again through a whole book, sometimes over a number of weeks, sometimes over a number of months. Um, but this morning, we're going to do what we sometimes do, and that is take a four to five week break and look at a subject matter that's critical to the life of our church. And so we're still going to be in the Bible. We're still going to open the Bible. We're still going to explain the Bible. Um, but we're not going to be working through one particular book. Um, so we're going to jump around a little bit. But uh, the passages that we read will be on the screen behind me. About 10 years ago, I lost a very good friend to a freak accident. He was out jogging on Sunday morning before church and was hit by a car, someone who'd been up all night, and he was killed instantly. His name was Gary. Gary was 20 years older than I was, so when he died, he was 59. I was 39. We became friends when I was 30 and he was 50, and I have to be honest with you, at the time, I thought he was so old at 50, but now that I'm just a few months away, I realize how young he really was. Um, but we developed this friendship. We started playing tennis together, and we would play horse together. He liked, to, he liked to shoot basketball. And on those rare occasions that he would win, I say rare because I was much younger, but when he would win, he would pull out some old school shot, you know, some underhanded uh, shot from the three-point line or some hook shot. And when he would win, he would celebrate like he just won a national championship. But we had this great friendship, again, breakfast together, lunch together. And he was the, Gary was a bank president who was wildly successful you know, from a world's perspective. Uh, but he was also wildly generous. He would give tens of thousands of dollars every year to missions and missions partners, along with, over and against, what he would uh, give, you know, on a regular basis, his tithe. And when Gary and I would meet, sometimes he would ask me questions about my goals. As you might imagine, a guy who was a bank president was a very goal-oriented person, and so he would ask me about my goals. And he said to me, I remember his advice, his advice that he would give me just about every new year, he would say this, in every area of life, you should be moving forward. Now, sometimes it's just slightly. Sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back. But in every area of life, you should be moving forward relationally, spiritually, vocationally, emotionally, financially, in all those areas. Gary said we should be regularly asking ourselves the question, where am I headed and how am I going to get there? Where am I headed and how am I going to get there? These are questions that are answered by 
vision and mission statements. So a vision statement paints a picture of where we are going and what it will look like when we get there. Now, we need a vision statement. We need a vision statement as families and individuals. You ever talk to someone toward the end of their life, maybe the twilight years, and they say, I have no idea how I ended up here. Like, I never imagined this for my life. I never dreamed that in my last few years, this is what I would be doing and this is where I would be. We need a clear vision, a clear picture of where we're going. A church needs a vision. Otherwise, we lose sight of where we're going and we end up like the church in the video that I just showed you that ends up going off the rails and becomes non-existent. In fact, there's a friend of mine who lived in Ohio. He was part of a church a number of years ago where things were really just totally going off the rails. They lost hundreds of people. Hundreds of people had left the church. Many of the staff members had resigned and gone elsewhere. And the elders found that they were just sort of doing, they were saying yes to everything. Yes to every new idea. Yes to every new initiative. Yes to every new ministry. And, uh, and again, things were going very, very poorly. Financially, the church was upside down. People just leaving in droves. And so finally, out of exhaustion and despondency, the elders said, okay, we got to meet and figure out where are we going? Where do we want to be? Where do we see ourselves? Where is it that God has called us to go? Again, these are vision and mission questions. Vision unites. Vision motivates. Vision emboldens. Vision unifies, especially during times of suffering or uncertainty. And maybe you think, but isn't this really a business concept? I mean, isn't this a corporate concept? I I thought that way myself for a while. But then I realized that all the great leaders of history, even the great leaders of the Bible, they were all visionary leaders. Constantly pointing people to a picture of the future. And of course, Jesus, as the greatest leader ever, was also the greatest visionary ever. He said to his disciples as they grieved his looming departure, he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. See the picture there. I go to prepare a place for you. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, this is what's in store for you. I'm going to paint a picture for you of what's ahead. We could even say the whole Bible, in some sense, is a vision statement. God's vision statement revealing to us what the world will be like when He renews and restores all of it through the person and work of His Son. So this morning, the next four weeks, we're going to look at vision and mission. This is something that Uh, We as elders have prayed about and discussed, uh, including a six-hour discussion a few weeks ago, and uh, and researched and studied and so on, had much back and forth, and so that's what we're going to do again over the next few weeks. Now look with me in Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15. Here reads the word of the Lord. Now after John was arrested, that being John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, just in case, if you're a note-taker, we're going to have four four points this morning. To throw you off, we'll have four points, and then I'm going to unveil to you uh, the vision for our church. But if there's one single theme that Jesus talked about more than anything else, more than anything else, it was 
the kingdom of God. In fact, this statement that I just read here, which is kind of a summarizing statement of, of Jesus' entire teaching ministry, which says, He went about saying, The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Even when Jesus talks about the gospel, He often talks about it as the gospel of the kingdom. It's not just a gospel of individual salvation, but a gospel that includes the whole cosmic renewal. God buying back through the life and death of His Son, Buying back and restoring everything that's broken. Think about the way that Jesus taught most of the time in stories or parables. And almost all of those parables begin something like this. This is the way it is in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like, or what shall we say about the kingdom? So this was constantly on the lips of Jesus. This kingdom that God would one day fully consummate. What Israel had longed for. And anxiously awaited Jesus Christ in his person, coming down to the earth as a helpless baby, had actually inaugurated. So here's our first point this morning. The kingdom of God is an invisible spiritual realm that has invaded the earth, whose citizens recognize and rejoice in God's sovereign rule over all creation. And I apologize for the length of that. I really tried to massage that and eliminate words, but I just couldn't say it any more succinctly. The kingdom of God is an individual spiritual realm that has invaded the earth, whose citizens recognize and rejoice in God's sovereign rule over all creation. You've probably heard of the, uh, the Thomas Jefferson Bible, the, the Bible that he edited and assembled. I think he finished it around 1819. Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, worked for years on actually cutting out and pasting portions of the New Testament to create his own edited Bible, which actually did not include the miracles of Jesus. So what he did was, he didn't believe in the supernatural, so he took out all the parts that were supernatural. He left a few references to hell and angels and the afterlife, but he took out the resurrection. He took out the miracles of Jesus. He took out the virgin birth, and he was especially annoyed by the doctrine of the Trinity. He said he longed for the day when we shall have done away with the incomprehensible jargon of the Trinitarian arithmetic that three are one and one is three. And so he took out, he had this, again, this Bible, sometimes called the Thomas Jefferson Bible, sometimes called the Life and Morals of Jesus, but he had, you can see it in the Smithsonian, there's actually, in a, there's a digital version you can look at, you can Google later. But he took out the supernatural parts because he just could not accept that something could be real that he couldn't see, feel, touch, or hear. Well, this is really, this is the height of arrogance and foolishness. To believe that the only thing that exists are those things that we can see, feel, touch, and taste. Anybody who's traveled to a developing country where the gospel is making inroads against the spiritual powers of the, the age and of that area will know that the idea that the only thing that exists is what we can see is completely untenable. What Jesus makes it clear is that the, the kingdom of God is here. It is present. It is around us. It is all around us. In fact, in Luke 17, we're told this, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in 
the midst of you. Well, if the kingdom is real, if it's here, if it's on this earth, that begs the question, how do people get into it? There was a man named Nicodemus who asked a similar question of Jesus, a teacher of the law, a well-respected religious leader. John 3 tells us, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It has a double meaning. One, what he's saying is, unless you're born again, you cannot see the way that God is at work in the world. You cannot see the advancing of God's kingdom around the world. But for those who have been reborn, no longer are we just consumed with what's going on in our own lives, the lives of our family, but in Christ we're able to see the bigger picture of a kingdom of God that is advancing. And as our minds grasp the work of God, it's kind of like the lid is taken off the box, where at one point we could only see in black and white, and now finally we can see in color. We can see things we never recognized before as we, as we observe God's powerful work in the world. Every day, God is turning chaos into beauty. By His grace and through the gospel, restoring broken relationships, healing hurting marriages, snatching people from addiction, bringing people to repentance and humility, giving them the power to worship and obey Him. And the person with spiritual eyes sees that and wants to be part of it by sharing the good news of God's reconciling work. So, so seeing, first of all, has to do with being aware of God's work in the world, but that seeing is also a metaphor for gaining entrance into, for being a part of the kingdom. Jesus is talking about entering the kingdom of God, which takes place what Jesus makes clear in that same section, and to be born again is to be made alive spiritually through faith in Jesus and then to be made part of that kingdom. So here's our second point. Entrance into the kingdom of God is gained only by faith in the king of that kingdom, Jesus Christ. So Jesus has not only inaugurated his kingdom when he came to the earth, But he's also made it possible for every single person alive to enter that kingdom. So people of all religious backgrounds, people of all moral backgrounds, the people who've committed the worst sins, the worst crimes, who've offended uh, us and God in the worst ways, the people who are self-righteous, the people who are black and white, the people of different racial and ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds, the people of different family lineages and educations. Jesus makes it possible for all people all kinds of people to enter into this kingdom. All are welcome into the kingdom of God by faith in the King. Jesus died on a cross to satisfy the wrath of God that was rightly directed at us, all of humanity, so that by trusting in Him, we could be made alive, have all of our sins forgiven, and enter into the kingdom of God in Christ. The Apostle Paul describes what happens this way. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you realize that right now, at this very moment, you are either 
a citizen of the, the domain of darkness, where Satan is your father and God is your enemy, or you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, where God is your father and Satan is your enemy. You can only be, you're only part of one. There's no such thing as dual citizenship. You're only part of one. A friend of mine played in the NBA for one year, uh, was drafted out of the college and, and played under Larry Brown, the famed uh, coach of the Philadelphia 76ers. And, uh, he had, I mean, he didn't really play much. He played probably average two or three minutes a game. But after his rookie season, he was released and went over to play in Italy for 10 years. And so played there. And while he was in Italy for 10 years, he and his wife had three of their four kids. Well, those kids were dual citizens. They were citizens of Italy, but also of the United States of America. Uh, well, there's no such thing in God's economy. There are no dual citizens. You are either a citizen of the domain, the kingdom of darkness, or you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You can't be both. And our citizenship in heaven, in the kingdom of God, is one that takes precedence over our citizenship in America. In fact, it's actually infinitely more important. I was at a church in July, a number of years, many years ago, and the pastor preached a very powerful sermon from Ephesians 3 on the mystery of the gospel and our identity in Christ. And I just kind of happened to be looking around during the sermon. I was listening, and, uh, but I noticed that the congregation seemed pretty disinterested. I mean, bored, really. It seemed like they were bored. And uh, he's up there, you know, he's preaching his heart out, and he's extolling the beauty of Christ. And I don't know, I just felt like the church was kind of yawning. Afterward, after he was done, the choir came back up, and they sang, God Bless America. And after that, the church, the whole church, rose to their feet, a standing ovation. And my heart just sank, absolutely sank. And I'm not saying the guy preaching should have gotten a standing ovation, but I am saying this revealed something about what the church was most enthusiastic about, America, not the kingdom. Well... What Christ came to inaugurate is a kingdom that's filled with people from every tongue, tribe, nation, all over the world. Now, someone might say, well, where is the kingdom of God on this earth? You say it's here. Even if it's invisible, we should still see evidence of it, right? And the, the answer is yes, we do. The kingdom of God is manifest in the church of Jesus Christ. In our day, the kingdom of God is primarily made manifest in a community, one biblical scholar has described the kingdom of God as the community that lives the life of the future in the present. So followers of Jesus are called to live now in a, in a way that one day everyone will live. When Jesus' reign is extended over the whole earth and the kingdom of God is fully ushered in. The kingdom of God where God's rule is evident and His mercy is on display is seen most arrestingly in the church. We might say it this way. This is our third point this morning. The church is the visible embodiment of the kingdom of God in this age. So when God's people live according to the, the kingdom way, God's way, when they obey God's command, they're actually giving people a glimpse into a kingdom way of life, into what the kingdom will be like. When God's people love one another unconditionally, they're showing people how things work in the kingdom. When God's people serve, and they give, and they sacrifice, and they pour into one another, they're showing people what the kingdom life will be like. When God's people welcome in the 
repentance sinner, even the one who's, am I still there? There we go. Uh, when God's people welcome in the repentant sinner, you know, even the one who's committed the sins that you know, we think we would never commit, what they're doing is they're showing a glimpse of God's forgiveness in Christ, welcoming in the sinner into the kingdom of God. In the church, there's a shared commitment to treat others with compassion, generosity, mercy, kindness, and to love each other the way that Jesus taught. And when we do that, we show one another again what life is like in the kingdom. So the way that we treat one another in the church, and I'm not just talking about when we come together in this building, the way that we treat one another as God's people should prompt the other people around us to say, those people live like they're part of another planet, like they're from another planet. They forgive one another instead of taking revenge. They give to one another. They give of their finances, their time, instead of piling things up toward the end. They love one another even when they've been hurt. They grieve with one another instead of celebrating when someone else is suffering or hurting. They seem like aliens on this planet. Where could they be from? Well, the Apostle Peter uses that very word to describe God's people, aliens. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from fleshly desires which war against your soul. The invisible kingdom of God is made visible in the church. Now, even though the kingdom of God has invaded this world, it has not yet been fully consummated. Of course, we know that because we still suffer. We still have sin and temptation, and we still get sick, and we still have to bury the people that we love. And we have chronic illness and nagging pain and surgeries. Right? And we still are in this spiritual battle that is ongoing and waging, raging rather. And we know that, that there's a real battle we're involved in. The kingdom of God, though it was ushered in by Christ, and we enjoy many of the blessings of it, forgiveness and supernatural peace and direct access to God and this incredible bond that we experience together in one, by one another. The kingdom of God is here but it has not yet fully arrived. The mystery of the kingdom is that it's already here, but it's not yet fully here. It's already and not yet. And you can see the tension there. It has arrived in the coming of Jesus, but it will one day be fully realized. Here's our final point this morning. At Christ's return, God's kingdom will be consummated and God's rule will be recognized and perfectly obeyed by all who forever inhabit it. So remember I mentioned my friend who had the, the granny uh, free throw shot, Gary. He would say to me, we should always be moving forward. Spiritually, relationally, emotionally, financially, we always be moving forward. Well, the story of the Bible, the story of God is actually always moving forward to a designed end. The story of the Bible is moving toward the full consummation of God's kingdom on earth. So the great hope of the Christian is not that we're going to go away somewhere, but actually that God is going to come down and be with us, that He will come down and live with us, and He will be our God and we will be His people. Now, granted, it's going to be a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth. 
But the whole story of the Bible is moving toward that time, God's complete restoration of all things, and the total reign of God on a new earth. That's the reason the Bible begins with a garden and ends with a glorious city, the new Jerusalem. That's because God intends to retake and to restore and to remake and to fill out and rule over the land that He promised our first parents and the land that He promised to Abraham as well. God will come down to us and establish His forever kingdom on a new earth where He will reign for eternity without sin. New Testament scholar Graham Goldsworthy writes, The idea of the rule of God over creation, over all creatures, over all the kingdoms of the world, and in a unique and special way over His chosen and redeemed people is the very heart of the message of the Bible. Now talk about a vision statement. Say, so, yeah, I'm, I don't know, I'm just not sure yet. I mean, do we really need a vision statement? How about this for the most compelling vision statement ever written? It's found in Revelation 22, writing to a church filled with anxious and suffering and exhausted and persecuted believers. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John shares a picture of where God's people are headed. A heavenly city with a river flowing from the throne, flanked by the tree of life, under whose shadow people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worship the risen Lamb in complete wholeness and shalom. Now that's a vision that inspires, isn't it? That's a vision that says, yeah, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that picture. Now you're saying, okay, talk a lot about the kingdom, and the kingdom is what Jesus talked about. What does that have to do with the vision for Capshaw Baptist Church. Well, the kingdom of God is the place where peace, justice, shalom, wholeness, all of those things reign. This is, by the way, what the miracles of Jesus were about, showing us what the kingdom will be like, where blindness will be reversed, sickness eliminated, spiritual oppression obliterated, injustice stamped out. And we want to see, as leaders, elders, pastors, congregants, members, deacons, we want to see God's kingdom come on earth in its fullness. Again, it will only be fully ushered in when Jesus returns, but God's kingdom advances. God's kingdom advances every time a person repents and trusts in Jesus Christ and is added to, transferred into the kingdom of God. And what happens is, when someone is, they put their faith in Christ, they're made new, they're given a new identity, they're transferred over into this new kingdom, they live in a different way. They live in a way that actually promotes justice and peace and love and harmony. So, if I had Billy up here, he'll be up in a minute. But if I had Billy back up on the drums, I might ask for a drum roll. Um, but after much prayer, discussion, study, back and forth at the elder level, Here's Capshaw's vision statement. Our vision is to see God's kingdom advance through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. That's what we hope for. That's what we long for. That's what we dream about. That's what we pray for, to see God's kingdom advance. This glorious picture that we want to see painted is this. God's kingdom advancing on the earth through the gospel until Jesus comes and fully ushers it in. How is God's kingdom advanced? 
as people turn to faith in Jesus. How do people turn to faith in Jesus? By the proclamation of the gospel. See, we can't build God's kingdom. We can't build God's kingdom. Only God can. But we can seek God's kingdom. In fact, isn't this what Jesus tells us? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you. What does it mean to seek God's kingdom? It means to long for it. It means to yearn for it. It means to pray for it. It means to live in a way as if the kingdom is already here so that other people might be attracted to this way of life and this Christ who's redeemed us. We can't build God's kingdom, but we can seek it. We can't advance God's kingdom. Only God can do that. But we can receive it. We can invite other people into it by faith in Jesus. And what happens to those who are brought into that kingdom? They experience the power and the beauty of God's forgiveness and the the indwelling presence of the Spirit. And they live in a very different way, a counterintuitive, countercultural way that actually gives people a picture or a foretaste of what God's kingdom will look like. And they live for the good of their city, for the good of their community, for the good of their nation, and for the good of their world. Now you might say, what about a vision for racial harmony? What about a vision for the protection of the pre-born? What about a vision for the elimination of poverty and homelessness? What about a vision for the ending of oppression and injustice? Do we want to see all those things? A thousand times, yes, absolutely. We want those things. But how will those things be accomplished? It won't be by political reform. It won't be by public policy. It won't be by greater teaching or some sort of mandate. This will only happen as God's kingdom is advanced, as people are brought into the kingdom by faith in Jesus and live in such a way that promotes harmony, love, peace, and shalom where every person recognizes every single other person as a cherished image bearer of God, worthy of respect and love and honor, and lives in such a way that we are valuing one another, living uh, together with one another in harmony for the glory of Christ and the good of our city. This is what we want to see. This is what we want to see. When people live as kingdom citizens, everything about the world is made better. Uh, biblical theologian Gerhardus Voss writes, There is a sphere of science, a sphere of art, a sphere of the family and of the state, a sphere of commerce and industry. Wherever one of these spheres comes under the controlling influence of the principle of divine supremacy and glory, and this outwardly reveals itself, there we can truly say that the kingdom of God has become manifest. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, When two people who were at odds with each other, maybe because of a racial difference, maybe because of philosophical difference, maybe because of some political ideology, when two people who are at odds with each other are reconciled to God by faith in Christ and then reconciled to one another, there we see the kingdom of God advance. When a young mom who's on the verge of aborting her preborn baby sits down with a counselor, and this counselor lovingly and tenderly shows her how this child who's yet to be born is still a person deserving of respect, love, honor, and protection. And that young mom decides to have that baby 
and to care for that baby, there we see the kingdom of God advancing. When people who hated one another, when people who are violently opposed to one another and fighting against one another are reconciled to one another by the power of the gospel, there we see the kingdom of God advancing. And this is, by the way, why Jesus instructed His disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are actually imperatives. It's actually literally, cause to come Your kingdom, God. Cause to be done Your will on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus is instructing us to pray is both for His return but also that while we await His return, more people will be brought into God's kingdom so they live in such a way that promotes human flourishing and brings the God of the universe great glory. So our vision as a church, what we hope to see happen, the desired end result is the advancement of God's kingdom on earth, which will be evident as, not just as people are reconciled to God, praise God for that, as people are reconciled to one another, praise God for that. But it will be evident as injustice is minimized, inequality stamped out, hatred obliterated, marriages strengthened, true beauty celebrated, poverty reduced, and the Lord of the universe worshipped as God brings more and more and more and more people to Himself through the proclamation of the gospel, those who live in line with the kingdom they've been transferred into. This is what we want to see. You say, how are we going to get there? That's the next four weeks. So I encourage you to be part of that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have brought your kingdom down to earth in the birth, in the life, in the obedience, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus. Father, cause us to be aware of it. Cause us who have been transferred into it to live in line with kingdom values and ethics. Cause us to seek your glory. And Father, I pray for that person who hears, who's here this morning who's still a citizen of the domain, the kingdom of darkness, led by Satan, satisfying the desires of the flesh. Father, will you do a miraculous work? Father, we're, we're pleading with you this morning. We're pleading with you this morning to bring some to salvation. Not, not eager for a public demonstration. We're not concerned about that. We want, to, we want you to do the work in the heart and souls of people so that you bring those who are self-righteous, self-reliant, wandering from you, walking apart from you to a place where they repent of their sin and trust in Christ. And they are miraculously transferred over from the kingdom of darkness to the glorious kingdom of your beloved Son. And Father, I ask that you would cause it to be so this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.